We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines. No. Anyway, hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the South Radio Network. Uh, this is your one-stop shop for everything that has been happening in front of and behind the headlines. <clears throat> All the news that fit to print. Well, most of it. Um, and the law. Exactly. So... What has been going on this week since we last spoke to our beloved guests, our beloved readers, listeners, etc.? What's been going on? Well, it's, it's damn cold out there. That's all I know. I'm shivering right now. Yeah, it's cold and uh, here in southern France, where there is uh, quite unusual for winter time, uh, especially when you keep in mind what Al Gore and his... Uh, Followers were claiming a few years ago, remember this scaremongering that our poor kids, who we never see snow except on postcards because of the global warming, would prevent any uh, snowfall. And uh, yesterday, not later than yesterday, French authorities asked skiers, people going to uh, or being in ski resorts on Saturday, to leave at once the Pyrenees ski resorts because of the huge snowfalls. Here we're talking about two to three meters, uh, two to three meters, about 10, 10 feet, of cumulated snowfall over about three days. So the authorities could see that people were in the ski resorts would not be able to leave because of so much snow on the roads. So that's it for the, the meat of the peering and uh, disappearing snow spread by the global warmest. Yeah, global warming is a, it's an interesting, interesting proposition, you know. It's funny, it's kind of funny on this on this planet. Things always seem to be divided, you know. Not always, but a lot of major topics are always kind of, kind of yes or no, you know, for and against. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it seems to polarize an awful lot, like and across the, the, the spectrum of disciplines or of topics or themes um, on this planet, you know, politics, you know. Um, religion. Uh, yeah, there's more than two religions. Well, there's more or less two dominant religions. Uh, you know, there's global ones, anti-global ones. You know, uh, why can't we all just get along and agree on something? Why, is, it, is it not possible for human beings to agree on something? I mean, as a, as a general rule, it seems not to be like collectively they can't agree. No, I mean, as, as if reality isn't the same for everybody. <laughs> and well, we live in a you know, a world where duality is a chief feature, you know. Like what? The duality of everything. Plus, minus, positive, negative, it, yes, no. Yeah, but is that a function of, of humans? Uh, you know what I mean? Is, yeah. that, is that an objective reality? Or yeah. is that a function of human beings actually, you know, projecting that onto the, in terms of the theories or, or creating their theories based on something that's inherent to human beings? And even if that's cold and warm, 
there is lukewarm, yeah, there exactly. is less warm and less cold and changing. I think there are several factors that explain this very dualistic approach. First, there's a trait of schizoid psychopath thinking, this black and white thinking. And also, it's uh, one of the main tools of the divide and conquer approach developed by our elites. And uh, sure, when you keep emphasizing this duality between Muslims and Christians, blacks and white, women and men, etc., etc., you divide and conquer because I think the elites realize that one of the main threats is people who unite together, like we see uh, mm. in Greece, in Spain, in other places. And the last point is that when you pre when you propose and promote such dualistic and simplistic ideas, you prevent the masses from thinking, from going deeper beyond this uh, apparent simplistic uh, analysis. Well, I don't have a problem with simpl simplicity of it because in, in a certain sense, I mean, what Neil said is, is true. I mean, obviously there's black and white that exists, you know, hot and cold, um, happy and sad, you know, that kind of stuff. But my problem is, is that, you know, people disagree all the time, you know, they look at something and one one person will say it's black and another person will say it's white. You know, I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the duality or, or, okay, there's more than there's shades of grey, but let's just say it was just all black black and white. Everything was one thing or the other. Why don't people agree on it? Why are there some, like Global One, for example, why is, there, why is the world polarised to whatever extent between Global Warping's real? Uh, no, it's not at fault. I mean, there is an objective reality somewhere. Apparently, it eludes human beings. And yet, we're all the same species. Well, I suppose that uh, the elites mainly don't have... It's not in this in their interest to recognize the truth because the truth is, is inconvenient. Hang on, hang on a second. Hang on. You keep talking about the elites. Yeah. But the only reason any of the elite stuff can take hold is because we're all thinking like that. The it's human true. species as a whole, it's no? It's true. Yeah, well, uh, I, yeah, that there's a collective responsibility, but I think the elites can be considered as a source of those, uh, these dissension with the population and lies, ultimately, and the media that serve the interests of the elite spread harmor in uh, people's mind those uh, untrue visions of the world, and uh, people... Their responsibility lies in the fact that they embrace those lies. Hmm. So you're saying that when we talk about the elites, you're talking about a power, uh, the established authorities of the day, who have the power to disseminate information and to therefore say what is, say yeah. if something is black or white, or if it's hot or cold, yeah. if it's global warming or if it's uh, global cooling, for example. Uh, so left their own devices, ordinary human beings would probably all agree on something eventually. I mean, you know, there would be some. A judicious uh, study of a particular topic, and you'd say, no, that's actually black. Yeah, we, we all agree. Yeah, every, apparently everybody all agrees that that's black, or it's all, you know, cold. Um, but that's not what happens, so it must be, as Pierre is positing, <clears throat> then the people who have the, uh, at somewhere, somewhere uh, along the line, people have the power to shape opinion and to disseminate information, uh, disseminate the uh, lies, basically, like say, say that something is... Uh, the opposite of what it actually is. And they do that for a vested interest, for, mm. for their own personal interest or for some agenda. And it's an interesting example to illustrate this dissemination of lies, conscious 
dissemination of light because concerning global warming, while the mass media controlled by the elite was spreading the global man-made global warming frenzy, lie. At the same time, you had some uh, CIA, FBA reports, even a Davos discussions, uh, no, Bilderberg discussions, sorry, that was that were global dealing cooling. with global cooling. So while the elites were preparing for global cooling, that they could see as a true perspective, they were spreading the opposite, a lie. So while they were buying wood-burning stores, they were pushing the masses to buy uh, um, air conditioners. And it gets even more screwed when a global cooling would hit. Mm. Or, I mean, by, 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 sorry, Neil, just one more thing. I was going to say that, therefore, you know, some dodgy deductive reasoning here uh, would lead us to believe that um, objective reality, things as they are, would um, tend to uh, select for or, or be, be be anathema to the idea of an elite in society. Is that true? An elite like as we have today, because what I'm saying is the elite seem to be pushing the opposite of what's true, and that seems to serve their agenda, and I suppose their agenda is to maintain themselves in positions of power. Therefore, to maintain the current hierarchy on the planet that we have today, they have to present uh, black as white, because if they just said, told the truth, basically, about everything, they wouldn't be able to maintain their position to power. Exactly, exactly. The elites stay in power despite huge injustice, unfairness, inequalities, etc., etc., etc. That is a totally unacceptable situation for the masses. So how that can they keep the masses uh, voting for the status quo? By spreading the lies and uh, twisting things and... Uh, describing a brave world where there is not so much inequality and where things are getting better and progress and technology and more happiness and uh, fight against racism and more tolerance and uh, uh, Mm -hmm. all all what we keep hearing every day. Mm -hmm. Because fundamentally, the regime instituted by the elites is not acceptable as it is. Mm So injustice is kind of rooted in a lie, then, since it's rooted in a lie. Social uh, social injustice or you know negative yeah. effects, ne- negative conditions on this planet are rooted in for people are rooted in usually rooted in lies. Uh, yeah, and no, actually, it's, it leads to an, uh, a question I've been pondering for a while about it's uh, suffering or lies. You know, when we're thinking about this human cosmic uh, connection and how times of oppression, what in this time of oppression leads to those hypothetized cosmic reactions? Is it suffering or is it lies? But when you think about it, it goes hand in hand. Those oligarchic regimes spread suffering because of inequality, because of violence, etc., etc., and in order to stay in power, despite all the suffering they induce, they have to spread lies. They have to sp- to manipulate the minds of people. So mm-hmm. suffering of masses and manipulation of masses go together. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say, It's just one of the comments on how remarkably um, prescient 
this global man-made global warming, the model they call it, it's, it's kind of a structure because on the one hand, it's something that takes place in science. On the other hand, it's um, political, Al Gore and his um, mm. roadshow. On the other hand, it's big business. It's big Barber money. taxes. Big time. Um, it's an incredible, uh, there's an incredible element of prescience. I, I've been able to foresee this scenario. But not, I'm not actually giving them that kind of credit. But at some level, that did take place because 30 years ago, the ball gets rolling on this. And we're now in a situation where, you see, we told you, because when, uh, you know, Grandma, what's her name? Somebody wakes up in in a remote southern island near Libya and she's got two meters of snow outside her door. She's kind of going to go, oh, maybe they were right, actually. I mean, before I would have just dismissed it, but clearly something is happening. And people are caught in the conflict of seeing something going on before their eyes. And the only available explanation is the one that's been <laughs> laid 30 years before. And it's, uh, you know, they get a lot of airtime. So you can see why people would believe the lie. Mm. It's understandable. The whole global warming thing is a little bit more um, global warming versus global cooling is um, a little more complex and, and complicated and can... You can see how it will allow for some genuine confusion, even amongst the people who are studying the data, let's say, mm, because sure. it's not just a matter of the planet's either getting warmer or it's getting colder. No, or it's well, not. What they see now is that the warming has resulted in these cold waves. Right. But they, would, they see no inconsistency. Exactly, yes. But, so, but what's really going on, I mean, our position or the position of, of, of you know, SAT.net has been that global cooling, uh, it's not so much about global cooling as in a trend towards cooling necessarily, but rather that ice ages tend to uh, recur, or mini ice ages, little ice ages, uh, same as the Maunder Minimum uh, several hundred years ago, um, that that can come on uh, and we essentially can have, a, a, a at least for the Northern Hemisphere, a, essentially a, some form of an ice age or uh, drastic cooling, but that preceding that, you can have spikes in heating in different areas and cooling, but also one of the most uh, one of the most evident aspects of that is, is climate chaos, not just not black and white warming or cooling, but chaos, as in uh, climate systems and uh, weather patterns just go kind of kaflui. Yeah. You have all sorts of things. You can have four seasons in one day, basically. Yeah. And, and in that moment, they can still say, well, that's global warming is causing that. And we would posit that, no, it's not just global warming. It's not even man-made global warming, which doesn't really factor into it. It's something else. It's much broader. And that this chaos, period of chaos, uh, is called by these other, caused by these other factors. And that once this period of chaos has run its course, that a very likely result is kind of glacial rebound in the northern hemisphere. Uh, yeah, so it's a bit more complicated. Yeah, you're right to, to emphasize those uh, details. <clears throat> to talk about what IPCC is focusing or was focusing its uh, analysis on, average global uh, uh, ground surface temperatures around the planet. To make the matter even less black and white, to allude to the previous topic, there has been a documented global warming 
exceptional global warming over the last half of the 20th century, roughly, 1950, 1998, roughly. It's documented, it's well accepted by global warmists and global coalists. But where vision diverge is after 1998, and even according to the data released by the IPCC, there has been, since 1998, a global cooling over the planet, grand surface temperatures. And uh, to develop what Joe was mentioning previously, global warming can be the trigger for a drastic global cooling, drastic and sudden global cooling. History shows that most ice ages that set very quickly, much quicker than we thought, over a course of three months now, according to some scientists, and were preceded by global warming. <clears throat> Here there are many factors at work, and uh, we won't describe all of them. But one of the factors that is easy to understand is during global warming, you have a lot of evaporation. It's hot water from the, uh, from the oceans, evaporates, snow melts up, lakes, rivers, etc., etc. You have a lot of humidity in the air, in the atmosphere. And when it cools down even just a little bit, all this water in the atmosphere starts to precipitate. And uh, it can precipitate in the form of uh, rain, it may turn into ice when you reach the ground, or it may precipitate in the form of snow, like we saw in the Pyrenees, in Libya, in the Mediterranean basin. Snow and this ice increase dramatically the reflection rate of the planet Earth. That means that the sun rays that before were reaching the forest, the land, and being absorbed by the planet are now massively reflected by the snow and ice coverage. It's called an albedo effect because it starts, uh, it triggers a downward spiral of more reflection, less heat absorbed, more cooling, more condensation, even more snow and more ice, even more reflection, less heat uh, absorbed, etc., etc. Okay, that, that's that's that, that's a still a hypothetical scenario. You you're, that you just described a model of what may come. I mean, this is more in what's what's actually happening, you know, in the sense of um, it, this this storm that hit the northeast U.S. last week. <coughs> they, it didn't bring as much snow as they thought, but in some you places, yeah. about three feet. Not to New York. But Was that exceptional or not? No. Um, I don't think... I think the totals uh, are exceptional. In a few places, there were uh, places... A few places had never had that much snow in a, in a single day. Um, so in that sense, it was exceptional in, in areas. But it's also exceptional because it's only, what, uh, four or five, maybe four or five weeks since the last one, uh, when, or maybe, maybe it's longer than that, but late last year, there was the previous uh, storm that brought major snowfall up to uh, seven feet in some areas. Yeah. So to have, I think to have those kind of recurring patterns over a short period of time in the winter, yeah, that's not usual. And then it melted rapidly. Now, the scenario you're positing up here is that you have a very wide area of coverage for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. And this has an albedo effect. Um, and just in, in terms of, you know, historical references we can relate to, the Little Ice Age is a good one. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a general period of chaotic weather 
and yes, prolonged deep winters. A couple of times there was basically no summer, or at least it was described that mm-hmm. way. Yes. Um, so we have reference to an extreme change, but not so extreme as the extent of a you know a deep glacial ice age. You know. Yes. Yeah. Um, going back to uh, snow snowfall, <clears throat> actually, snowfall per se is not a sign of global cooling. It's not a proof of global cooling. Snowfall is a proof of uh, increased chaotic weather. Snowfall, like precipitation in general, is a result of uh, cold air and warm air meeting each other. If you have a very homogeneous weather areas, well demilitated uh, by a straight and strong jet stream, you have Arctic air cold and dry up there over the pole, you have this moist warm air over temperate regions that do not meet, they're separated by the jet stream, you don't have much precipitations. When jet stream becomes chaotic, meandering, then you keep having those moist, warm and dry cold regions meeting and leading to front and front and fronts, and those fronts are what triggers those uh, massive precipitations snow or rain, but you can have snow with a, a temperature of zero degrees Celsius, which is a, a 40 Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. which is not extremely cold for New York in winter. Yeah. Something that's increasing big time, and you're going to like this, Mr. Electric Universe, They there are so many, I've been collecting videos of tornadoes and water spouts especially late in the month. It was around the time of this cold snap in the Eastern Med and in the U.S. And there are tornadoes touching down. It's snowing. It's blizzard, and there's a tornado going on. And then there's a flash of light, you know, like I guess a lightning bolt. Not a snow-nado. A snow-nado. It's, uh, it's awesome to hold. And the ISS, the guys up there in the space station um, put together some kind of composite video of some images of the Passover storm. I think it was late. I think it was in December. And I, I think I think they were saying, hang on, we've never seen quite like this before. It was the eye of a storm, maybe a cyclone over the Pacific, and it's just constant flash after flash, like like strong maybe lightning strike in the center of the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody came up with some explanation for it, but by the sounds of it, that was previously unseen, unobserved. Um, I, I think I remember seeing pictures of. Uh... Uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, weather um, vortices, weather vortices accompanied by thunders, by lightning, lightning. But this being said, yeah, you're right. The, uh, just to remind our listeners, mainstream science claims that the main and actually only driver for tornadoes and hurricanes is the heat coming from the ground, from the oceans for for hurricanes. And uh, there are several. Uh, Examples you mentioned songs, and uh, there is a very, uh, very unusual one where you have a hurricane forming over the ocean uh, near east of uh, Newfoundland, yeah, in Canada, like 50, 55 degrees north. At the time this hurricane formed and developed, the water was about seven degrees Celsius, which is maybe uh, 48 uh, Fahrenheit. 
Um, and so according to classical theories, this hurricane was totally impossible. There was not enough energy, not enough heat in the water to feed this massive uh, hurricane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one way to come back to this, you're either pro or you're, you're anti. Mm-hmm. You're a warmest or you're a coolest. Or you see it from one perspective or the other. I mean, it's in itself... At least the way we're discussing it, it's far too simple. Is it cooling or is it warming? Yes, there's historical cycles where the ultimate shift that takes place is one of a much colder climate. Ice age takes cold, increased precipitation, albedo effect, sort of what you described. But uh, it's it's the simplicity of what what leaves the academic papers by the time it passes through science writers and gets into the media, the take-home message is far too simple. It's warming or it's cooling. Well, which is it? I give up. I'm, I'm not interested. Um, it's obviously far more complex than that. Um, yes, science! <laughs> what was that? Uh, yes, science! Yes, yeah, science. Yes, science. Everybody loves science. <laughs> you know, one but, of the, the fundamental myths, even just this word, ice age, it's depicted as exceptional weather, as if warm periods are the norm. But when you look at, at recordings over hundreds of thousands of years, the default weather setting for planet Earth is what is called ice age. Warm period like 20th century or second half of the 20th century is called the modern maximum. It is an exceptional period of warmth that lasted 50 years, and usually those period of warmth last uh, from a few decades to a few centuries and are separated by normal default cold period that lasts for centuries, like modern minimum about uh, five centuries. And interestingly, you see a very strong correlation between civilization development, and we're talking back or Babylonians up to now, when the weather is nice, and which is exceptional and doesn't last long, civilization blooms, which is an apt metaphor. Civilization blooms like the flowers and everything in spring, summer. And during the default mold, what we call Ice Age, a civilization either collapse or regress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the extremes, you know. Uh... Like you can get in the summer, you can get ice in Greenland melting at an extraordinary rate, and the headlines are like, "Oh my God, it's happening!" But they kind of then don't do the same. Oh my God, what's this? When the ice rebounds the next year in the winter, the, the, what's missing? The middle ground that's missing is that the the, sh- the shifting between extremes. That the, the thing you need to understand, and that the chaos that's going on out there in the environment is part and parcel of the chaos that's going on in human society. Uh, yeah, uh, this uh, ice melting at an extraordinary rate in Iceland is a good example because it's a reverse, or it's the same, it's due to the same factor that explains what happens in the US to polar vortex, polar vortices uh, phenomena. Basically, a jet stream that usually is below Greenland, so Greenland is covered by uh, Arctic dry cold air, 
But when the jet stream starts meandering, actually, Greenland ends up being south of the jet stream and being exposed to a temperate climate, like here in France or over there in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Hence the chaos, hence the high variability, the contrast from one day to another sometimes. Mm-hmm. And New York to London uh, flight last week apparently broke the record for the shortest time it's taken to fly mm-hmm. um, the regular voyage because it, its speed was taken up to something like 700 or 800 miles per hour because it caught this jet stream mm-hmm. that's barreling straight through the UK right now. Well, not at the moment. It, it stopped, I think, but it brought a series of storms to the UK. Um, that's, um, Although that's something, that's a pattern we saw last year, wasn't it? Storm after storm in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a yeah. straight line. Exactly, yeah. There were storms, but that, they all coincided with this, with winter storms on the east coast of the US. We've seen this for the past few years where the east coast of the US gets uh, pummeled with uh, snowstorms, you know, repeated snowstorms. And at the same time that that's happening, uh, those storms seem to spawn or be uh, associated with uh, a set of um, systems that move across the Atlantic. And um, and and bring last year, as you're saying, brought not snow but high winds and flooding and a lot of rain uh, to to the UK. Um, this year, uh, the, it seems to be more of a association that in kind type of thing. It's snow uh, that the UK is getting right now and is going to continue getting for uh, the next while. Has been for the past week and will continue for several more days overlapping with this uh, storm in, in the U.S. And there's other storms on the way for the east coast of the U.S. Uh, now as well, so there doesn't seem to be any let-up in that, you know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how it goes over the next month or two, you know, in terms of just how long the winter lasts and how bad it is, you know. Uh, I have a feeling that spring might be uh, might take a while. Yeah, might take a while getting here, you know. A snow-nado touched down in London, actually, during a blizzard. Destroyed a house somewhere in North London mm-hmm. a few days ago. Um, the Middle East is covered in snow. Mm-hmm. I want to say covered well. They're getting a serious amount of snow around the Levant, Eastern Mediterranean, but it has gone down as far as Dubai mm-hmm. and Central Saudi Arabia. I mean, yeah. but actually, I look back and well, that's the past five fight. winters, exactly, it's happened. Yeah. Right. So that's the kind of you know, and here massive snow. In the Levant or in the Middle East, is indicative of chaotic weather. You have a front, so you have mass of air of very different temperature, but it's also, also suggestive of a unusually low temperature because snow, like precipitation in general, happens with a warm front. So it means if you have massive snowfall in the Middle East, it means that the warm front was. Uh, at zero degrees or lower for snow to occur. That's a warm front. So it means that before that, you had a cold mass of air that was probably uh, negative and uh, doesn't happen very frequently in the news regions. Yeah. Or spare thought for the 700,000 people in the Middle East, more, I think, who live in tents. Because of non-stop wars, mm-hmm. Palestinians, Syrians, 
all was thrown across Jordan, Lebanon. Yeah. Just in that plane, uh, you know, probably up on, on the point, uh, on that plane thing, it probably wasn't a jet stream, because the jet stream, the plane is flying. Far higher, yeah. Well, the plane is flying from the UK to the US, right? No. Oh, the opposite way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that's where the jet stream goes. Yeah. yeah, you think that would happen more often, though, you know, because the jet stream kind of barrels along there uh, at that high high rate of speed uh, pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's up to 200 miles an hour or more. Um, so and, maybe it was continually there, but the, maybe the pressure drops. drops down. I mean, the maybe pressure drops, and it's at those winds are traveling at that kind of speed at a lower altitude. Then. Well, actually, yeah, like they were saying, that if the jet stream meanders down, then and it's on a, maybe a, on a long stretch as opposed to a loop, or it would uh, it could just happen to catch the flight path of a. Yeah, this it goes together. Uh, actually, when it meanders, it means it's weak, it's zigzagging, and uh, speed would be about seventy to ninety miles per hour. But when it's strong, it doesn't meander anymore. It's yeah. really straight, like a river. If there's a lot of current, the river doesn't meander; it goes straight. And the jet stream, in this case, can reach uh, yeah about 200 miles per hour. And it's straight yeah. from New York to London, almost. So that's ideal for maximizing yeah. speed of, uh, of fa- a jetliner, yeah. of an airliner that is flying at the height of the jet, spe- but uh, the fact the jet stream, 10 but kilometers. But the fact is, the news recently suggests uh, something unusual. That's not something that happens with every single plane, but uh, many that fly from... Uh, the US to uh, to Europe or the UK, you know. Um, so either it was lower and uh, not meandering, or I don't know. lower, not necessarily because the jet stream usually it's around this altitude, three thirty thousand miles, uh, thirty thousand feet or ten kilometers. Uh, however, it suggests yeah, a powerful jet stream, straight and fast. Which suggests in turn a unusual uh, electric activity. I mean, if our hypothesis are correct, one of the main drivers of jet stream is uh, electric activity. Well, or solar activity. Let's, let's spell this out for people. They're hearing through mainstream science and just whatever filters down into scientific writing in the media. They they're all looking as far as I can. They're looking through the telescope the wrong bloody way. Because they're thinking that weather systems are the result of ground conditions. And then those weather conditions in turn affect and regulate which direction and which speed and how it meanders the jet stream. So they go from the ground up. But go on, in fact, yeah. it may be that it comes from outside in. Yeah, the cosmic exactly. environment affects. Yeah, yeah exactly. They have it. Actually, it's an inversion of the causality <coughs> relationship. Uh, this, uh, they do the same with... Uh, the CO2 temperature duo. They say yeah, increasing CO2 leads to higher temperature. And when actually when you look at records of uh, the past few million years, indeed there's a positive correlation between CO2 level and temperature, i.e. when CO2 level rise, temperature rise, but a slight time offset. And when you look carefully at the curves, you can see that actually first temperature moves and then CO2 moves. Um, which suggests that the driver, the cause, is temperature variation, and as a consequence, CO2 goes up or down. It makes sense, actually, because when temperature rise, ocean temperature rise too, which leads to a CO2 release from the ocean, which is the main reservoir for CO2 on planet Earth.
See, so it's not people. Hmm? No, you got that right. <laughs> no, then CO, people in CO2, almost, there's almost no correlation. I mean, man-made CO2 is about 3% of total uh, CO2. Most of CO2 is produced by uh, volcanoes, oceans. Big, big contributors. Yeah, human beings, it's a... Uh, or cow farts, all that is a uh, total myth. Nothing. It's neglectable. Well, how are the natives doing on the planet? What natives? You know, the little people. The little people. Yeah. Well, people are complaining, you know, quite a lot, more and more. Um, thousands of people took to the streets in a march for homes in London um, today, I think. Um, uh, they got, got to listen to speeches at the uh, City Hall in London, and they were carrying banners saying, reading... Um, People before profit and build council homes and take the wealth of the one percent. <laughs> yeah, Don't just, laugh. These are just ordinary. <laughs> What's wrong with that's a good cause? Take the wealth Whoa, of the one percent, dude. Well, dude is right. Those people are angry and they and they're out to get the one percent. But their mayor isn't paying any attention, is he? He's part of one percent. He, as Boris Johnson this week described, described. Islamist in quotes as as wankers. He said that they're all watching kitty porn, and they're a bunch of wankers. Yeah. <laughs> Something well, reminds really nice. people for, where the thanks, where the real issue lies. Thanks for the informed opinion there. <laughs> well, London You're despicable. I, I was laughing about this uh, banner. Take the wealth of the one person because actually there's a direct link here. London, because when you look at the real estate, it's very interesting in the sense that over the last last month, there's been a total what they call decorrelation. There are some regions that see prices stable or even dropping, while other areas, mostly wealthy areas, some uh, districts in Paris, London, and City, Mayfair, uh, uh, Chelsea, New York, like Manhattan, Long Island, the price over there are booming. And that's uh, in, that's in fascinating, I find, because uh, it's almost a direct evidence that all the money available is in the pocket of the 1%, and they invest in the district. That's why they buy houses, and the price will keep going up oh. because they keep buying, buying. And they're partying like it's 1999. Oh, yeah, big time. And uh, it's correlated because <laughs> when you drive prices up, when you have those uh, bubbles, uh, at least local uh, speculative bubbles, it has an influence on rents. It, has to, uh, it affects the rest of the real estate market. So they are right, those protesters. Maybe more than think. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and the crisis in the UK. Uh, it's a bit like uh, what's going on, in, what went on, and what is still going on to some extent in the US. In the UK, you had uh, forty thousand homes that were repossessed over the last twelve months. September 2013 to September 2014, you have more than 344,000 people on the waiting list, on the council home uh, waiting list. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically, uh, while a lot is done for the rich, one for the rich, one percent, poor people they just uh, they try to get food stamp, they don't get houses, and they, they barely survive. 
Yeah, they've... Uh, well, the Tory government just has told them all to get jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's impossible. Yeah. That is literally... It's not only their public statement. I mean, it's basically what their policy amounts to. Just get a job. Get a job. Even if they're a useless wanker. But you said the irony. Again, lose 1%. How did they find the money to buy those luxury mansions in Mayfair? To profit. One of the ways they made profit is by minimizing costs in corporations. How Hiring do they people. Hmm? Hiring people. Hiring people, reducing their wage, and delocalizing production in China or low-cost other low-cost nations. So when this guy tells the poor, the masses, to get a job, those ones who are complaining about uh, uh, real estate, actually they cannot get their job because of the very same 1% who fired them in order to make more profit, in order to buy those houses in, uh, in fancy districts. You see how uh, there's a double, double screw-up here. It's like yeah. a sort of self-contained ecosystem. There's um, a big protest in Hong Kong again, but no violence. Um, the Irish people are continuing to protest about water, and I'm kind of laughing a little bit here because I've always found this, this is an ongoing protest in Ireland about being charged, citizens being charged for a water bills, basically, that they already pay through their taxes, but the Irish government sold off the the water company and water treatment uh, process to a private company that now wants to make some money off it, so they're fix, uh, levying fixed charges for or charges for the amount of water that people use, and there's been protests going on since last year over that, and they're still protesting again um, today. Thousands <coughs> taking to the street protesting water charges. It's just funny because um, you know uh, Ireland is like you know it's kind of it's known as one of the most water clogged yeah, places exactly. on, on the planet, you know. Uh, it's, and it actually officially does rain at least 50% of the days of the year there. So maybe a little bit more, you know. Um, so the idea that people that will be charged for water is maybe a bit harder to take than if you were living yeah. in, the, in the desert or something, you know. Um, and and there was, from last year as well, there was some politician in the Irish Parliament who who was complaining about these people protesting about water and saying they should just suck it up, literally. <laughs> Not literally. They should, um, because he said, he actually said officially and he's on, on camera, to, I said this, that it doesn't just fall out of the sky. <laughs> water. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, those are protests going on. And, you know, there haven't been many protests in the US, really, I mean, since last year and the whole Ferguson uh, stuff. But, the at least in New York, the authorities seem to be taking a lesson from it because there's been, just in the past few days, there's been a, a discussion on, off, yes or no, maybe, about uh, a New York Police Department anti-terrorism unit uh, would handle large-scale demonstrations in the future. Yes, you heard that right. An anti-terrorism unit that has been established and works anti-terrorism, or is trained for anti-terrorism, would handle large-scale demonstrations. So demonstrators are equated to a terrorist? Well, no, well that, that or there's a shortage of terrorists. Yeah. And they need to do something. So it was, uh, uh, it's a shortage. It's a crisis. There's not enough terrorists. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that, all about numbers. It's a numbers game. Isn't it? <clears throat> well, this was, this was um, the New York Police Department commissioner said that this would happen at 350 
member anti-terrorism unit would would help handle future large-scale demonstrations. Uh, but then now the the police, some other police authority, is saying that no, we need them for for you know for terrorism-related duties, and, and and another different outfit will handle large-scale demonstrations. But I think the point is that they're looking to assign a specific uh, department or group or section of the police uh, to handle large-scale demonstrations. I mean, traditionally, it would just be police, ordinary police, your average New York police uh, uh, officer would handle demonstrations, you know. And do you think this special section would be tougher or well, softer? I'm, well, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, <laughs> I'm assuming they'd be trained in how to handle large numbers of people who might get violent, you know, and they'll, like the, uh, they'll have, um, you know, they'll have police, police department medics as well there just in case, you know, for uh, the obvious uh, outcome of those kind of um, handling, that kind of handling of a demonstration, you know. I I want to dig up the German government solution this week. You know they've had big protests there against them. Um, Muslims by these far, well, far right. Well, I'm not sure we can call them that anymore because it's been more mainstream. So right groups like this Pegida Association, anyway, the anti-Islam protests in Germany has been attracting some quite a lot of people. But the German government has decided to uh, not in they didn't directly say that they were trying to appease these protesters, but one of the main things they're protesting about is the fact that there are so many asylum seekers in Germany and most of them come from the Middle East which is of course torn to bits by countries like Germany mm-hmm. um, so they've decided to house all these asylum seekers in one city city of Augsburg and they've come up with a great idea of housing refugees who arrive from the Middle East in a former branch of the Nazis Dachau concentration camp uh, Aunt Jay Seubert, a representative of the Green Party, celebrated, no doubt over champagne, the decision and called it a victory over fascism. Victory over fascism to house yes. immigrants. I'm reading the AP report there. To house immigrants in a, in a, in a section of Dachau, a former Dachau concentration camp. Yes. But how is that a victory over fascism or over the re-Nazi acts? And they call it a, a victory over fascism. Yeah, that's progressive. Inconceivable! It's absolutely inconceivable. So vote Greens at the next election. That was a Green politician who said that. Yeah, well, they've all lost the plot, obviously. (laughs) And knowing that one of the main lines of the Green Party was this uh, anti-racism idea. Well, speaking of of the military, the militarization of society or of uh, security or in, in... the free world here in the West. Um, there's a story that a new British Army elite unit is to hone its social media and psychological warfare skills. <clears throat> the British military is going to form a new specialist force in non-lethal forms of psychological warfare using social media such as Twitter and Facebook to tackle the asymmetric battlefields of the 21st century. So 2,000 people made up of regular troops from all three services, that's the air, land and sea, as well as reservists and civilians. They will attempt to draw the best talent from the regulars and reserves and will also allow civilians with specialist skills to operate alongside their military counterparts. Maybe I'll apply. I've got some good Facebook skills. Uh, their mission is to shape behavior 
through the use of dynamic narratives. Bullshit, yeah. in other words. <laughs> shape shape <laughs> behavior through the use of dy- dy- dynamic narratives. That's that's, that's, that's a shape, real shape behavior. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I thought it was very funny way to describe it, though. It was a they made a point of describing it as non-lethal forms of psychological warfare using social media such as Twitter. So they're saying, don't, don't worry, you. we're not <laughs> not going to kill you with our uber uber special Facebook and uh, Twitter skills. Um, you may be shocked and awed, but you won't die as a result of our what was the word? Um, of our dy- dynamic narratives. Our dynamic narratives. But what if someone actually dies from being subjected to one of those dynamic narratives? Then it becomes lethal. Very well, they told every point. You could maybe sue the government. One of your soldiers killed me on Facebook. Definitely car- clever. It's a little, literally character assassination, you know. <laughs> uh, what's going on there so better watch out people the British army are getting on to Facebook to uh, take care of the bad guys so don't get caught up in the fray is all I would say just watch out if you see a disturbance on Facebook or Twitter just back away slowly follow instructions uh, but uh, I'm wondering to what extent this information is an information in the sense that I suppose, Did, didn't England pursue PSYOPs for decades on uh, social media or through other ways? So making it official now, do, do you really think it's a, it's a new thing for them or well, why I, do they make it official now? I think they probably make it official for propaganda purposes, yeah. but also they want to assign some official money to it, uh, have some real state financing for it and uh, probably... The client is right for them to do that and to get away with it, basically, to, to have it sanctioned and people agree that it's a good idea and throw money at it, at it and it can be, um, you know, all above board and they can have more people involved yeah. in it, you know. They don't have to do it so covertly, you know. It's maybe a message to the masses as well. Well, now we have propaganda, the, uh, military oper- uh, operators on the face- on Facebook, on social media, so you better be aware about what you, what you write and yeah. what you think. Dynamic narratives. Uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing. The brigade will also specialize in reconstruction and development and humanitarian assistance in the battle to win hearts and minds. Yeah, humanitarian assistance. Humanitarian assistance on Facebook? Yep. Yeah, you mean. What? So, yeah, it, I, I guess the way I decipher this, uh, this uh, lies, actually, this manipulation is. Uh, they would spin what they do in Libya or in Syria uh-huh. and call it, you know, we're not funding, uh, uh, maybe the words should, should be mentioned, the word starting with fund rebels, pro-democracy rebels, because we care about the Libyan or Syrian population, you see? Mm-hmm. We want them to, to know what freedom is. Mm-hmm. We, we want them to be happy. That's our main concern. As li- Libya goes to hell in a handbasket. Literally, some major attacks there this week. Well, it's in the process of uh, dynamic liberation. Yeah, it's dynamic liberation of <laughs> d- dynamic narratives. I guess that's. Dynam- oh God, this reminds me of something else. Um, Newland this week, Victoria Newland, giving a talk somewhere, and she's asked a question in this conference about RT. And do she see it as an enemy or something? 
And she's like, no, 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 no. I mean, we, we have... We have... And she was bigging up basically the U.S. media, but I guess Western media in general. And she said something about how... Um, oh, I wish I had a quote to hand. Like, the, the market for truth is not, you know, sole domain of RT or something. She's implying that we have, we have, we have many truthsome... Exactly. Yeah, but they don't. That's the problem. They don't fighting, have a single one. <laughs> they're fighting a losing battle because all you have to do is compare like Fox News, not just Fox News, but MSNBC or, you know, um, any other news outlet, you know, Washington Times, Washington Post, all the newspapers, their online, online versions and um, the various kind of popular talk shows and stuff that that in the U.S. together would... Uh, be comparable to what RT does, you know. Uh, it's print media or web-based media. It's um, shows, you know, chat shows or discussion shows, etc. I mean, you'd have to include Fox News, New York Times, all that kind of stuff. And also things like uh, Bill O'Reilly and John Hannity and stuff. You look at all those together and they just produce nothing but, you know, rhetoric, black and white thinking, simplistic, narrow-minded, extremely U.S. Uh, centric, you know, analysis of, of every situation, and it's very short on actual details on nuances. You know, it's not very interesting. To, you know, it appeals to people who like just their, you know, who are just vanilla. Everything's just vanilla. You know, keep it a simple, stupid type thing. But for people who like, think You're a little bit, goddamn right. It gives them nothing, you know. And and RT does another uh, outlets like that give uh, a more in depth, more. You know, they give more details, basically, and it, and it makes it more interesting because the reality is much more interesting than the way it's presented by U.S. media. And it's boring when it's presented by the U.S. media. It's annoying to people who, who prefer their, their truth more truthful or objective. So you go and look for things like to RT for, for that. And that's why the U.S., that demographic who, who wants things a bit more uh, nuanced, essentially, and, and more in-depth, uh, the U.S. has nothing to to really present that even scholarly, more highbrow kind of outlets like the New York Times or the or the Washington Times, the Washington Post, or whatever, uh, they just use fancier words to say the same thing. They give very short and detailed, very simplistic black and white uh, analysis of the situation. So they don't have anything to compare with uh, RT, and that's why that's why they're so scared about RT. You know, because it tends to it's more gives more truthiness to the situation, and um, they can't compete. And there might be another reason why mainstream media spread this very simplistic black and white uh, vision of the world. In that it reminds me of uh, Gustave Le Bon, The Crowd. In this book, he describes how to have an impact on individuals, listeners of yours. You have to deliver, to deliver very simple message, pictures, symbols. Because then you cling into, you resonate with their emotional center you you have an impact you imprint you can you're more prone to manipulate you shunt the thinking center and russia and some few other media take the other route they appeal to the reason to the thinking of the individual mm-hmm. so it's two very different approaches <clears throat> not only concerning the content but even concerning which part mm-hmm. of the individual they address and it's a it's a dividing line, you know, really for for people. It separates people out, and it gives them different kind of. Uh, ultimately, more people immerse themselves in those two different uh, viewpoints or absorb information from those two different um, parties or 
they 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 start to form different realities essentially. Their their perspective on what's going on in the world becomes further and further well, apart. It becomes so divergent. It's, yeah, it's just like it's a chasm. You, you know, know? It's, it's like and, and I mean the problem is a lot for a lot of Americans they've been fed on that kind of a diet of simplistic uh, black and white um, you know analysis of the situ- of any situation for a long time. So they've been they have an appetite for it now, or that's the only thing they can really digest because they've been uh, conditioned to only be able to, to to digest that. They only have the they have the enzymes. They only have the enzymes that will digest simplistic black and white news, you know. Um, and I mean, it's kind of interesting because I mean, I'm not talking about just now. It's been going on a long time. I mean, I was just watching a video earlier on today where the chief of staff of Colin Powell. Uh, was talking about um, the former chief of staff, Colin Powell, was talking about uh, Colin Powell's uh, um, submission or speech to the UN to justify the invasion of Iraq. And um, he just made the comment that, you know, it was kind of, it had an effect, you know. Most people in the in, in Europe and in other parts of the world didn't really have much effect on him. But they realized that afterwards, what he thought it was a really shitty presentation very badly done. Uh, he, he was surprised a few days later to see that it did have a positive effect on a lot of Americans. But then he added that, yeah, the reason maybe it did was because at that time, after 9-11 in particular, a lot of Americans were hearing things about Iraq and Gaddafi and Iran. Um, and to the average American, yeah, they were all the one person, you know. They had no conception of who those people were. They were all the same, you know. It was basically the Middle East, you know, just everywhere, over there, basically, you know. And they can hear all different names and different names of countries and different names of, of leaders of countries, but it makes no difference to them whatsoever. It's like just one boogeyman, I think, you know. That's an example of how they already, by 9-11, had been, you know, conditioned to... Uh, Want things or accept things that were very simplistic in their yeah in their narrative. They were primed. They were conditioned, as you said, by uh, years of previous propaganda going yeah. this way. Uh, another um, dividing factor between those two uh, media approach is also the tone, the way the information is delivered. The content is different, as we say, uh, nuanced, in-depth analysis versus simplistic uh, slogan, and also the emotional content, the tone, leads to hysterization, I think appeals particularly to uh, what Ant Mayer described as authoritarian followers. There is this, uh, you can see a very good example is uh, is Adolf Hitler, like uh, how more by the tone, the emotional content than by the words, I think, although I don't understand German much, he was able to get an emotional grip on the listener and bring them into a very specific emotional state made of hysteria, of highly suggestibility, mm. of identification, mm-hmm. of uh, shutting off any critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, people are, I think people today in many countries are primed in the same way. I mean, Absolutely. the same thing could happen again. Very Speaking of dynamic narratives, then, the ISIS people beheaded this Japanese mm. Kenji Goto. It was just there today. Yes, really. 
Not in heaven. I mean, but there's a kind of a, a whatever, whatever about the actual reality of how it's actually playing out on the ground. What happened to this person? Um, horrific, no doubt. The, the the theme, the the media theme. It's like here it goes again. Just mm-hmm. press play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just upload this into Japan and. Yeah. And it works because Japan's saying now we're going to join the fight against ISIS. I mean, really, is it that easy? I mean, it was one Japanese civilian, and because it was done publicly on TV and it comes in on the heels of uh, a series of these public beheadings, uh, that's enough for Japan to join a war. One civilian. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter that he was uh, was you know filmed and put on TV. It makes no difference, really. Ultimately. Uh, I mean, it's almost like they're just waiting for an excuse. You know, that, like, you know, Japanese said, well, listen, you know, we can't really join ISIS without some good reason, i.e. something to galvanize our population and get them a bit worked up. Yeah. Well, let's kill one civilian. But really, in the context of the, the, the massive death of human beings over the past <clears throat> number of years, in the Middle East in particular, uh, one Japanese person, really, and not, not to be disrespectful, but it's not significant. But, but it's not significant enough to get them into war unless there was an, a, a pre-planned uh, desire yeah. to be involved in that war. But by Japan, of all places, like I mean, it's it's almost as far from the Middle East as you can get, you know. Like Pearl America, like Pearl Harbor, like the Bay of Tonkin, like uh, Reichstag. Like you need the elites know their plan to some extent, but they need to some extent at least the imprimatur of the people. So they have to prime and uh, and manipulate the people into accepting what is not acceptable. And and this example of uh, decapitation, uh, it applied to this Japanese uh, individual and before to other Westerners. It illustrates again the shift between this uh, the power of symbols, emotions, of hypermediatization, and uh, the, the shut off of uh, any objective thinking versus the other approach because. Those thousands of Palestinians dying or in yeah. Iraq, millions of Iraqis, yeah. it didn't affect uh, Westerners because the treatment of the information was totally different. Mm-hmm. I saw uh, Japanese news footage, or anyone could have filmed it, maybe it was RT or something. They were filming a scene on a busy street in Tokyo, and the news, it, it shows the news is breaking, or it's the news is playing that day about this guy's beheading. And it's got the horrific scene on, on massive TV screens, like on the streets, you know, public TV screens. And then it's got a close-up of two guys, two young guys walking by. And there's this horrific um, play going on in the background of this huge TV screen. And the two guys are laughing. One of them is sharing his phone. They're probably talking about sports or whatever or girls or something. And they're just laughing, you know. They're just casually, completely oblivious. And yet, of course, they're not. They're aware this is going on, but th- this is playing into something subconscious. They, they go on about their lives, you know. It, it doesn't matter that they get riled up and hysterical. That's, that's not the point. It's, it, it comes on the back of all this other programming, mm. you know. It, so the, they can just glaze over. The, they don't need to sit and digest and actually think about it. Mm. That's not expected of them at all. You see what I'm getting at? It's, it's, it's weird. I just, that, that scene just struck me as so freaky because you would think you would drop and stop and go, God, that's awful. But the person doesn't, most people don't even get to that point. 
You know, it all takes place in the subconscious, the terror, the horror, you know. We're it's, taking care of it. It's all it's, good. It's kind of like trying to refine down uh, an insult to the body, public, the public body of of of, of a population, you know. Uh, I mean, 9-11 was a very real and dramatic insult and wound inflicted on, on the American people, a, a slap in the face to the American people. That's the way it was felt. And you can see how you would have a groundswell of support for some kind of retaliation for this. But it's been refined down now to just one person from a single country. And because of social media and, and you know, international communication stuff, you can you can make an entire population aware that this one national, and he's been talked about for a few weeks in advance, that he's Japanese and these boogeymen or these bad guys are going to kill this Japanese person because, well, we suppose they hate Japanese people and everybody's worked up into a state of, will he be freed, won't he be freed? And then, oh, he was killed. And it's, you know, there's, a, there's an emotional, strong emotional aspect to it of identification with it, with this person, me, and they insulted Japan. And, you know, insulted the, the honor of the Japanese type thing. And it's all just played up for them. You know, it's, it's because yeah. in reality, it's just one Japanese guy who was in a war zone and got killed. I mean, you, you explain it as it is in reality, and it's totally insignificant in the context of thousands of people, people being killed. The fact that the Japanese uh, citizen was in a war zone and he got killed. Oh, it should have been a footnote. Mm-hmm. Japanese citizen died as a result of ongoing conflict in the Middle East. But it became the chief drama. But how does it then launch a war? It became a drama, but then it's used in that way and and used to launch a war, something that should be a footnote in the newspaper uh, and understandable in the context and not really meaningful to Japanese people. It suddenly becomes causes belly for the Japanese government to send its only aircraft carrier, uh, you know, <laughs> into battle type thing. It's just the whole thing's just bizarre. And it's what you mentioned is important. I think these weeks of uh, agony in the, among the public viewers, in the, the public body. Because when you look at it, these stories have all the ingredients of a very good tragedy. You have the suspense, the build-up. Media would show picture of the uh, target. They would show picture of the family. They would describe how his life, how his life is similar to our life, how innocent he is, uh, how cruel the the killers are and there is this build up in suspense in drama until the denouement until the, the conclusion which is overly dramatic a dramatic that is fully meditated it's a it's a perfect tragedy as you can find on the theater scene well it also makes me wonder about uh, again and this is something that has been consistent throughout the whole war on terror uh, which is the rather feckless and self-defeating strategy uh, imp- used or implemented by these jihadist groups, you know? I mean, you'd think that they would have learned by now that when you, you know, behead up on camera and, you know, make a big scene of it in public and tell everybody that you're going to do this, that it's simply provokes the ire and of the country in question from where the, the, the person uh, hailed retaliation, military retaliation against you, you know? So it seems that this IS group wants, its strategy is to provoke as many major nations of the world 
to send their armies to bomb the crap out of them. That's their, their battle strategy. That's how they're going to win, by getting as many major industrial and militaries or the militaries of industrial countries in the world to come and bomb them. But if mainstream media address this point, which is a very valid point, they will deflect it, rationalize it, and even take it to their advantage by saying, yeah, but that's one more proof of what we say. It's a barbaric, brainless murderer. But I can go with that, and what I would assume, I would expect then, that the existence of a group like IS would be short-lived. And when you've got America, Britain, France, uh, well, most of NATO, uh, and, and now Japan, and Canada, uh, etc., all with yeah. their sights trained on these group of what some people say is just maybe 10,000 pe- 10, armed fighters, I mean, it's got to be over pretty soon. Like, but apparently at the same time they're saying that, they're, that the you know, generals in the U.S. are saying that these, are gonna, these guys are going to be a threat for the foreseeable future. Forever. Well, the, the beauty of dynamic narratives, emphasis on keyword dynamic, is that ISIS can be shuffled away, and this week you can have al-Qaeda in Yemen claim responsibility for the attacks in Paris, and furthermore identify no longer the U.S. as big Satan. Now France is their primary target. So, you know, either yeah, they said France. France. It's a big amorphous. You can just pick yeah. a narrative, shape this one, some, swim over this some. one. As part of this statement, they... They further said they're setting up, and no, this is actually a separate story. The Islamic State, the IS people, said they're setting up an English language group of fighters whose aim is to bring the terrorist organization's fight to the West. They're planning this part of the battle strategy. Thankfully, the U.S. government has already warned us about it. They now want to launch a massive wave of terrorist attacks in English speaking countries. That's America. Australia and the UK. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Canada, presumably. And Canada, okay. Yeah, it's yeah, so they said this Al Qaeda in Yemen. Liquid war. Al Qaeda <laughs> in Yemen that took responsibility for the Paris attacks have said that France has replaced the US as enemy number one because of the way that it's treating uh, Muslims. Yeah. That's what they've said. There is more or less. Fortunately, there is a balance. Yes, because they've identified France as being the primary <coughs> impetus behind the war on Islam. Right. Fortunately, there are some balancing forces, and uh, Israel is raising its end towards uh, French Jew individuals and uh, has set an agency to uh, help Jewish people who want to feel safe and difference because of terrorism to make their what they call aliyah and join Israel, a safe place to uh, to avoid terrorism and do some major threat that uh, looms over our heads. So fortunately, there are some balancing power against uh, terrorism. Well, and and the, the name yeah, of the, of the program is, is Friends First. It's, it's, called? it's called Friends First. Friends First. And uh, the major contributors to Alayas in the world in 2014 was Friends. So it's working and, uh, oh. well, and people good. are finding a safe haven. At least some people will be will be safe. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, I want to I want to bring up something that uh, is bizarre, but it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna raise a few eyebrows. I'm gonna read an article I found from 2009, British Independent. <clears throat> and the article begins: Imagine this scenario: a network of violent radicals 
is picking off the world's leaders one by one. They have killed the American president, the Russian head of state, the French president, the Austrian head of state, and the Spanish prime minister. Bomb attacks are ripping through the world's richest cities. Explosions devastate Wall Street, the London Underground, a theater in Barcelona, cafes in Paris, parades in Moscow. The, the police profile of a typical bomber warns, quote, he walks to his death with courage and no regrets. There's widespread panic in government's launch programs of torture and deportation targeted at immigrant communities. Yet still the radicals watch defiantly across the world, killing as they go. They have only one aim, they say, one science, destruction. It sounds like a feverish novel about Al-Qaeda set 30 years from now. But it has already happened. This is a story from our past. In the late 19th and 20th century, anarchist bombers did all this. They were prepared to die for their beliefs. They lived in the same places as today's Islamists, such as Whitechapel, Brooklyn, the Bronx. And they struck the same targets, or Whitechapel in London, sorry. They struck the same targets, like Lower Manhattan, on a clear September morning. Yeah, but they didn't kill the American president. Yes, they did. Who? Um, Garvey? Garvey, is that his name? This is in the late Garfield. Eight, in the late 18th and 19th century, is that it? Mm-hmm. Or late 19th and 20th? Late 19th and 20th. Over, a period, 20th. Of, over a period of 20 years, there was um, the terror, the war on terror. It wasn't called the war on terror, mm. but it was a, a distinct period leading up to the First World War mm. in which violent radicals, extreme lefties, anarchists, were... Uh, they blew up um, a bomb. They detonated a bomb outside the Wall Street yeah. exchange. Yeah, but uh, that, exchange. that was all part of the. Uh, they were all part of the basically yes, uh, a workers kind of. Uh, some of them were anarchists and stuff, but uh, they were, it was all founded in um, uh, uh, a movement against kind of uh, or for workers' rights and against. Uh, Conditions in factories at that in that at that time in the late 18th century when industrialization had really kind of taken hold and people were being massed into <clears throat> into factories and working uh, under horrible working conditions and there's even the um, there's a massacre of uh, I mean it was it was very much uh, that was all very much associated with uh, strikes I know I know Joe, I'm time. sure the ideology was beautiful in places my point is the actual results and make note of the fact that this all just disappeared more or less overnight. It was a, there's a certain window in which all these things happened and then it stopped. My point is that there's a historical relationship here where the, the results are essentially the same no matter the ideology behind mm. it. And then it's dropped. It's like, well, it's a, I'm giving away there but I'm insinuating that it's ultimately controlled by other forces to say that it's dropped. But it just stops. And World War One happens and there's, there's no more anarcho- terrorist groups assassinating one leader after another and blowing up uh, cafes in Paris, dropping bombs in Wall Street. There was a very discreet period in which this apparently coordinated wave of global terrorism and radical extremists was taking place. We've been here before, folks. Not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of the concept, maybe, but on a much smaller scale and uh, yeah, smaller uh, scale. They they actually kill world leaders. You know, but that is a smaller scale in terms of 
the war on terror today and uh, and the scope of it and what's being done in the name of it. I mean, this was, well, this is all a prelude to the Great War. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it led up to that, but I mean, it wasn't the cause of it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know. Sure. Uh, yeah, the analogy fits, but with limitations. Again. Yes, it's not. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't want to get into conspiracy theories because you know that's. Uh, I'm just, not, there, I'm just noting the historical pattern. That's yeah. a no-no. Um, it's bad. But, I mean, there's one conspiracy theory. I don't know what people call it a conspiracy theory. It's just from very recent history. Last year in Ukraine, um, a lot of people thought that the... <clears throat> suggested that the, that the coup or the regime change, whatever whatever you want to call it, the overthrow of uh, the Yanukovych government in uh, in February last year, it's coming up on the anniversary, uh, was, you know, wasn't really people power that it was affected by the West. And uh, there's a story just out today, uh, well, it was just from um, a couple of days ago, that Obama, in an interview, um, openly admitted brokering position power in Ukraine. Specific words were he told CNN Zachariah Zachariah, that Washington had brokered a deal to to transition power in Ukraine following on the heels of the deadly protests on Maidan and Yanukovych then fleeing. This is what Obama said that that Washington, i.e. the US government or their agents had brokered a deal to transition power in Ukraine. The strange thing is there you know, there had been a deal reached uh, with European foreign ministers, Yanukovych, and the opposition leaders in Ukraine just prior, or right at the same time as the shootings were going on, the sniper shootings were going on in, in central Kiev near the Maidan. There was a deal there that met all of the, at least in theory, met all of the demands of the protesters. Yanukovych effectively was resigning but was going to stay on until there would be early elections that year. They would revert to the 2004 constitution, basically drastically limiting his powers. So effectively, he was just he was just going to be a nominal head of state for a few more months, and then he was gone. Uh, there was uh, general elections, and I mean that is exactly what the protesters wanted, and that deal was brokered with uh, the Polish, French, and uh, another uh, European uh, foreign minister along with between them, Yanukovych, and the opposition leaders like Yatenyuk and um, Klitschko and Turkey Nose. <clears throat> That's not his real name, but it's close enough. So the strange thing is, is that what happened to that deal? Well, what happened to that, that deal that should have gone through was that suddenly then people, someone started shooting in a, in a concerted way, started shooting protesters and policemen, snipers, just off the Maidan started this campaign over a couple of days where they shot a uh, hundred people, uh, including policemen and protesters. And there's evidence from the, uh, I think it was the Estonian foreign minister speaking to Catherine Ashton of the EU, telling her there's a tape, telephone call where she, where he tells her that he has seen evidence or talked to someone in Ukraine, one of the uh, uh, surgeon or doctor in Ukraine who said that the bodies of these people who were shot were all shot with the same uh, weapon, essentially, with the same caliber weapon that effectively it looked very much like the people who were shooting people on the Maidan uh, 
i.e. policemen and protesters were the same people. It wasn't two separate groups of people, one attacking the policemen and one attacking the protesters. It was one group of people attacking both of them. And all of these deaths, these sniper shootings, resulted in the ditching of that agreement that I just spoke about. And then a new agreement, well, I mean, I suppose the, the deal that Washington had brokered, the deal that I'm speaking of, because it was thrown out, so there was the deal that they brokered to transition power in Ukraine seems to have been some covert or <clears throat> unknown hidden deal that wasn't publicized that used the shootings as justification for, for this deal, which was Yunukovych, he, well, he didn't, former president Yunukovych, he, he didn't get a, a say in it. He basically it was made pretty clear to him that he had to get the hell out of Ukraine. He would have been strung up or something. Um, and then you had these uh, right-wing uh, kind of Nazi elements who were inducted into the transition transitional government, which wasn't really a transitional government because it, uh, when they had elections late, later last year, the same people more or less stayed in power as were put into power, apparently under the under the stewardship of Washington. Uh, and of course, we have the Newland previous to that, the Newland Payat call, where she said, "Fuck the EU," and uh, but that's not the important point of what she said. The important point was that she picked Yanukovych as the prime minister. And he became the prime minister. So it's all very suspicious, to be honest. I mean, you got to look at that suspicious, in particular now with, uh, particularly now with the, the admission from Obama that they brokered a deal. And you look at the details; it must have been some other deal uh, that was much more like a coup, an external coup, uh, effectively. Or uh, because you know what people people on the Maidan, the protesters on the Maidan, supposedly wanted was change in government, but a, a democratic change in government, you know? I mean, if it had to come to it, they might have, you know, had to have a, a violent coup, but apparently that's not what they wanted. They were on the streets protesting for a change of government, and they got a change of government. But then that was changed in favor of this Washington deal that Obama said Washington brokered, which was much more like a coup because Yunukovych had to flee. There was no transition, no handover of power. It was this guy had to leave the country on fear of death. That's that's as close as you can get to him being shot. You know? And that's why he left, because he would have been shot. So um yeah, I mean to me it looks like Obama is admitting that Washington was involved in a in, in a coup in Ukraine last year. A violent coup. If you look at the details he doesn't say it, but you look at the details and that's what it, it, it comes out as. But he the the deal he was brokering was the one that they were going to sign on the 20th and then it never came to be because of what happened the next day. But that was just... No, that's, not he, that's not what he's saying. No. You might have to explain no, that. The here. thing is, on, on the on the 19th, 20th of February, mm. there was a deal yeah. that had been in the process brokered by European foreign ministers, France, Poland, and someone else, <coughs> with the opposition leaders and with Yanukovych. They all sat down and signed it together. Mm-hmm. And the deal was that Yanukovych would stay in power, but they'd revert to the 2004 constitution. Yanukovych yeah. would uh, call early elections, and he wouldn't stand again as president. Basically, him saying, okay, bye-bye, in a few months, I'm gone. But let's do this peacefully and democratically. But that was subverted and thrown out and tossed in the trash because of these shootings. Right. that happened right at the time, just after or right around the time they were signing this. And then... A different transition to power mm. came into effect, which was 
under the on, under the conditions of essentially violence of murder and death by these snipers who are shooting at both sides. And it's that that was the actual transition to power. So the the, the deal with the EU foreign ministers and Yanukovych and the opposition that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. What happened was something else that wasn't really publicised. But it seems to be that Putin or Obama is now saying that they Washington brokered that deal right. that ultimately caused the transition to power, which involved Yanukovych being forced to flee. And mm-hmm. Newland's call, a government picked by Washington by the State Department, was put into power. So. You had no democracy, no democratic choice there. You had a uh, an unelected group of people put into power. But Obama can plausibly claim that, well, I didn't see that coming. I mean, I helped broker this other deal that never came to be. No, he's not saying that. He didn't. That's the thing. He didn't. I mean, there's no question. He can't claim that because that deal was brokered between European foreign ministers. That was an EU. You know, oh, he's talking about something else. He's talking deal. about Washington brokered a deal to, to transition power in Ukraine following the protests on Maidan and, and Yanukovych then fleeing. Okay. Yeah, because Afterwards. the official deal, you're saying, was brokered between e- three EU nations and, and Ukraine authorities. Yes. So, but the, the deal Washington that I... was not involved. No. So the one Obama is referring to Has is to obviously the other one. another one. And the other one was Yanukovych left. The other one is the one that was implemented. The one that was implemented was Yanukovych being forced to flee on pain <clears> of death and an unelected government coup being put into power because from from February until later in 2014 those people making decisions including the decision to wage war in Eastern Ukraine were not elected the deal with the EU and Yanukovych that was subverted because of the sniper fire was a deal that would have been a democratic at least because it would have maintained the current government maintained the then government maintained the present then Yanukovych until elections could be held so, yeah, while Ukrainian authorities and European authorities agreed on a rather soft and democratic transition in the background, Washington and some elements in Ukraine probably had other prepared plans. a, a violent coup. Softer transition. Yeah, less that's soft transition. That's, what, that, that's a reasonable conclusion from it. I mean, that's the data that is available. Mm. Uh, that's yeah, what I yeah, I understand the, the reasoning. There. Yeah. The, the dynamic narrative in Ukraine is took a bit of a hit this week when the Ukrainian chief of staff went on record as saying there were no Russian troops. It's a very dynamic narrative. It's a variable geometry. He later backtracked weeks after weeks. He, he later backtracked and said, "But there may be some in the second echelon." <laughs> I don't know what. What is the second echelon? No, clearly somebody told him. You idiot. Apparently, he then had to go back on TV onto Poroshenko's own TV station, which he owned, and make a apologies. Um, make a qualifying statement. Oh. We didn't see any, doesn't mean there's none. Yeah, it must have been difficult because, uh, from what you say, it was a pretty clear statement. There is no Russian troops on Ukrainian ground. You need Donald Rumsfeld Rumsfeld in here to back to, 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 to qualify that with there are no knowns. There are Known unknowns. There are unknown knowns. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Excuse me, but is this an unknown unknown? 
I'm not several unknowns, and I'm, I'm just wondering. I'm not going. I'm not unknown. going to say which it is because I don't know. It's an unknown. But he that's, knows that he doesn't know, which is very important. That's uh, that's U.S. foreign policy right there. Um, that's that's a summation <laughs> of the feels what call. Poroshenko's promise to be, for Ukraine to be, entirely energy independent within two years. Took a bit of a promises, promises. Took a bit of a, <laughs> a beating as well this week. Not six days after he said that, Chevron had decided to pull out of both Poland and Ukrainian prospective gas shale fracking projects because the prospects look a bit bleak. <laughs> you think? There's a master of understatement right there. Um, yes, but speaking of Ukraine, I mean, yeah, they're waging their anti-terrorist uh, operation again, or they've reignited it uh, on, you know, full speed ahead of bombing and shelling of uh, various different places in, uh, in eastern Ukraine in an attempt to uh, subdue, I suppose, the Ukrainian or force the Ukrainian people to submit uh, to central rule from Kiev when that's apparently not what most of them want. Um, and they're, but they're willing to, to carry on, you know, and the, the, the Ukrainian government has decided to I mean, it sounds a, sounds a bit uh, optimistic, but they plan to they're re- reintroducing a, a draft or a new surge of a draft, basically, where they hope to, over the course of this year, recruit 100,000 soldiers. Uh, that's Poland might be too. Might be introducing a draft. Poland to launch a civilian military training. They're calling up 40,000 reserves this year to take part in exercises. Hmm. Uh, it's an old, actually, it's ironically, it's an old Soviet program where they offer training to you know regular civilians to keep a kind of reserve reserve force mm. on top of that. Mm-hmm. It's Syria, and that. Well, that's one. That's one thing to put, call up your reserves. But what what Ukraine is doing is just dragging people off the street with no military experience whatsoever, putting yeah. a gun in their hand and saying, "Down into the cauldron," you know. Well, sixteen years old. Yeah. As young as sixteen years old. That cannon us. Apparently, a lot, of people, a lot of people of military age in Ukraine are just leaving now, you know. And who could blame them with that kind of a ultimatum, you know? Uh, gold. Russia has increased its gold purchases by 123%. Yeah. Uh, it bought a record amount of gold in the first 11 months of 2014. Yeah. Uh, Excellent. Russia's gold purchases accounted for one-third of the world's total according to research by And the rest is China. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, it got even better in 2015 because mm-hmm. their purchase rate quantities even increased and the same for China. Hi, guys. Looks like they dropped their uh, connection again. So, in the meantime, we'll play a little clip here. We will let Samwise Gamgee tell us what we're all doing. I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. We're back. Because they were holding on to something. 
Sorry we got cut off there, folks. What do um, we to, Sam? I don't know, Sam. There's some a Lord of the Rings there to keep you uh, keep you entertained. Hopefully our silent man will uh <laughs> very good. So uh, yeah. That's uh, gold. I don't know, physical gold, yes, uh, someone in the chat room was asking. Yes, that's physical gold. Uh, it is hard 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 cash. <laughs> <laughs> Literally hard cash. Uh, hard goldy colored cash. So um yeah. So maybe the Russians have a good idea. Uh buy some gold. Maybe uh, everybody should buy some gold and see what happens. Yeah, they've been buying about 30 tons a week in 2014. Mm-hmm. So uh, more than double compared to 2013. One third of the world production, the rest being bought by China. Actually, the total China plus Russia exceeds the total world production. And uh, it gets even better in 2015, where Russia, China jumped from 50 tons in month in 2014 to 70 tons. Uh, no, a week from 50 tons a week in 2014 to 70 tons a week in 2015. So it keeps increasing. And what is interesting is also the repatriation processes accelerating, especially from the US and UK to uh, the Netherlands and Germany. So these are repatriation processes that are spread over years. Every month, Netherlands and Germany are getting about uh, 5 to 10 tons. And um, I don't know if you remember in the previous show, I mentioned this major commodity trader, number five in the world, that closed its physical gold offices because it was, quote-unquote, unable to find a reliable source called gold. Reliable gold. And uh, commentators, experts at the time, are puzzled by this commentary, wondering about all these uh, tungsten-coated bars and uh, gold that would not be owned by uh, the one who's selling and some uh, national reserves being uh, sold without the owning nations being informed about it. And actually, Germany, during this repatriation process, mentioned a very similar remark saying that they are double-checked and, uh, and they had conducted thorough examination of the gold bars coming from the U.S., suggesting again that there are very strong suspicions of uh, some uh, gold-coated tungsten bars circulating on the gold uh, world market. Yeah, so watch out when you're buying gold. Make sure it's a real thing. Best way to, best way to determine that is to just bite it. Yeah, it could be <clears throat> chocolate bar with gold wrapping. Exactly. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, I'd buy that for a dollar. <clears throat> Pity gold wasn't being sold for a dollar an ounce or something. Anyway, um, we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners and to our chatters. Uh, we will be back next week with another show uh, with some witty repartee and uh, lots of useful information. So until then, bye-bye from all of us. Have a nice week. Bye-bye. See you next week.